Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.35, Missy of Edinburgh, Queen at Last. Last time, we saw Missy adjust to her new life in Romania, chafing against the restrictions placed on her movements and company by King Carol, frustrated at the impotence of her husband and by the machinations of the triumvirate of enemies at court led by Queen Elizabeth. She flirted with scandal with her relationships with Lieutenant Zizi and Waldorf Astor. I left you last time with the introduction of, along with her husband, the most important man in her life. Prince Barbo Sterbe. Today, with war on the horizon, King Carol will prepare Romania for the succession, identifying Missy as one of the future leaders of this proud new nation-state. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my patrons that keep this show going, especially my latest supporters, Carrie and Rachel. If you too are able to support the show and would like to do so, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. The rest of you, welcome back. In 1910, Missy and Nando undertook a state visit to Germany. As a Hohenzollern, it is unsurprising that Nando had always been pro-German and had been close to Kaiser Wilhelm. Hailing from Britain and being a woman, it's unsurprising that Missy did not share his fondness. The Kaiser had an extremely condescending attitude towards women, even for the time. At the time, the German and British empires were involved in something of a Cold War, engaging in a naval arms race and being increasingly pugnacious on the diplomatic stage. 
when combined with Missy's charms and the Kaiser's misogyny, it is unsurprising that she was hated in Berlin. Wilhelm's wife Donna particularly disliked her, thinking her a bit of a harlot. The inverse was true in St. Petersburg. She was, of course, half Russian, and was compared favourably with her cousin Alex, as her charms and love of society marked a stark contrast to the Tsarina. The place where her heart truly lay, though, and where she was most popular, was in her homeland. Her uncle, King Edward VII, had always been a fan, but the accession of her former flame, King George V, in 1910, sealed her affection for the UK. These contacts in foreign courts were significant assets for Missy. When added to her natural charm, it made her a great potential force. This was finally recognised by King Carol in 1913, who was beginning to think of the future. Now, in his mid-70s, he recognised that he was likely not long for this world. He had blamed the peasant uprising in 1907 on the intransigence and obsolete thinking of the older ministers that had been in power for so long, and had begun to look to the younger generation. The first man that he turned to was Jan Bratenau. He was a second-generation leading Romanian politician. His father, of whom he was named after, had accompanied Carol from Germany when he originally took the throne, and had been one of the leading politicians of his early reign, serving two successful terms as Prime Minister. He had made sure that his son had the best education money could buy, but nothing could have bought the natural talents that Jan possessed. He had what one historian I have read called, quote, wheedling, insinuating charm. A stocky Don Juan with a leonine head, black eyes and a black beard, he was idolised like a Turkish pasha by the women of his milieu. He became the leader of the Liberal Party in 1909 and would eventually serve five terms as Prime Minister. He was married to Barbo Sturby's sister Elise, who was a woman of whom Missy was rather in awe. A severe and impressive woman, she was of high birth and possessed the bearing to match it. Which brings us back to Prince Barbo Sturbe, who we've already met. He was not a natural intellect, but was an arch-pragmatist and possessed formidable political antennae. He had looked at the world around him and saw that it was the democracies of Europe that were gaining strength, while the autocracies were waning and failing. He therefore had come to the view that it was sensible to ride this liberal wave rather than be King Canute and try to prevent it from crashing down. Even more than King Carol, Barbo Sturbe recognised Missy's potential and took it upon himself to be her political mentor. Up until now, Missy had never had much inclination to get involved in political affairs. King Carol had always kept her at arm's length from such things. Her husband had never shown much interest in her and Missy's upbringing had not instilled her in a desire to get involved in the running of a kingdom. The two Sturbeys both recognised that she was not just a pretty face and charming personality, though those were two great weapons in her arsenal. She was curious, bright and quick to learn, and with Elise's support and Barbo's tutelage, she quickly gained in confidence and competence. Barbo told the king, quote, It's essential not to break her will but if we can persuade her to take herself and her duties more seriously, her natural intelligence will do the rest. This view was backed up by the British ambassador, who astutely saw her potential. Quote, It is often said that when Prince Ferdinand comes to the throne, it will be the princess who will be the true ruler. 
but I feel sure that Her Royal Highness will be far too clever to step outside her own role, and that she will know how to supplement any possible deficiencies of her husband by the savoir-faire and tact which she has inherited from her father and the royal family. In her autobiography, Missy says, quote, My eyes were open to several truths, and when I began to go more deeply into the interests of my country, much that I had not understood or had overlooked through ignorance or lack of perception came comprehensible to me. My horizons widened. I came together with more interesting people. Now I had really definitely grown up. Changes were taking place in my life. I was slowly advancing towards the heart of things. The days of acute loneliness were over. I was no more a stranger in a strange land. I had, so to say, found my footing. Also, my interest had awakened, and today, when uncle and nephew discussed politics or military questions, my ears were no longer closed by indifference, and by degrees I began to see the importance of their conversations and to become keenly interested in all that was vital to the country. Agriculture, industry, army, internal and foreign politics, the desire for expansion. What Missy was quickly learning was the complex nature of Romanian foreign policy at this time. Now you may remember from a couple of episodes back, following the Romanian War of Independence, Romania had signed a secret defence treaty with the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy. It had done so for a couple of good reasons. Carol was German himself, as was his heir Nando, and the alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary would protect them against the expansionist Russians. However, there was one very big problem. Transylvania. This province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was full of ethnic Romanians, who were being very badly treated by their Habsburg masters. The inclination of the Romanian people was anti-Hungarian, as they wanted to see the unification of the three historic principalities of Romania for the first time in centuries. But, of course, there were wider issues at play in what history sometimes calls the Balkan Cauldron. The disintegrating Ottoman Empire was seeing former provinces being picked off one by one. In 1912, Italy conquered Libya, and more importantly to us, Bulgaria, Serbia and Greece began the First Balkan War against the Ottomans. You may remember this from our series on Sofia of Prussia. The war saw a decisive win for the Balkan powers, but most particularly Bulgaria. Jealousy and anger over this saw the Greeks and Serbs, backed by the Ottomans and Russians, agitate against the Bulgarians, who were themselves backed by Austria-Hungary. Now, Romania had some skin in this game. Bulgarian success in the First Balkan War threatened to make them the preeminent power in the region. Public opinion demanded that Bulgaria should be put in its place. But, of course, this was at odds with Carol's foreign policy of alliance with Austria-Hungary. Missy was not all that involved in this crisis, as she was heavily pregnant with her sixth and final child. But she saw the incredible strain that this put on the elderly King Carol. Unsurprisingly, the tensions in the Balkans led to a second war, with Bulgaria launching a surprise attack on her former allies. The Romanian people, whipped up into a frenzy by the anti-Bulgarian and Hungarian press, and the war party in Parliament demanded that Carol declare war. Indeed, they gave him no choice, and he did mobilise his forces against Bulgaria. This came a little too late for Romania to have any real impact on the fighting, 
as the Bulgarians were quickly pushed back and defeated. Romanian troops advanced into Bulgaria with little human resistance, but they did encounter a terrible cholera outbreak. By now, Missy had given birth to a son, called Mercea, and so was able to see for herself the horrible impact the disease had. Quote, I was brought into sudden contact with this terrible scourge when I went to visit the troops and the Red Cross hospitals scattered along the Danube. Up to then, I had had nothing to do with war or with any of the horrors inherent in epidemics. I was appalled by what I saw, but at the same time, ardent desire to help alleviate the suffering of our soldiers was suddenly born within me. Something never before felt rose from the very core of my being. An immense urge towards service, a great wish to be of use, even to sacrifice myself if necessary, to put myself entirely at the disposal of my people. I cannot help looking upon that sudden contact with cholera as a turning point in my life. It was my first initiation into suffering on a large scale, a thing never before known, heard of no doubt, but as something far away with which I should never have anything to do. And here it was, rising huge before me to throb through my whole being as a message sent to awaken within me sleeping forces of which I had never been aware. Her friend, Elise Bratiano, was leading the effort to set up and fund the Red Cross hospitals and camps to treat the sick, and Missy took it upon herself to personally administer one of them. In so doing, she went against the wishes of the king and went to Bulgarian territory to see for herself what was going on. Quote, Disobeying the order that no woman might go across the Danube, I played a flying visit to the Bulgarian side, crossing almost secretly on one of the boat bridges erected by our troops. There, in a forlorn village, I saw sights which made my blood run cold. Cholera brings panic in its wake. The lightning rapidity and virulence with which it attacks and overthrows its victims, the way it manifests itself, is indeed shattering to the strongest nerves. In that nearly forsaken hospital on Bulgarian ground, I found many of our soldiers almost abandoned and dying for the want of nursing and proper care. This gave me a terrible shock, especially when I realised that our sanitary organisation had counted upon the wounded, but was not properly equipped to meet this sort of disaster. Everything seemed to be lacking and the doctors were waging a losing battle which brought consternation and confusion into our ranks. Missy managed to persuade the king to let her run the camp, no mean feat, and did vital work in helping to save thousands of Romanian soldiers' lives. All told, Romania suffered almost no combat casualties in the month-long conflict, but lost over 6,000 men to disease. The Second Balkan War had three major consequences for our story. First of all, it increased Romania's prestige tremendously on the international stage. The peace treaty was signed in Bucharest, and Romania won some territory along the Black Sea as compensation. Second, by going against the wishes of Austria-Hungary, Romania proved it would not be a puppet of the Triple Alliance. They had not broken the terms of the treaty, and its provisions still stood, but the ties binding Bucharest to Vienna had loosened. And third, it saw Missy fully emerge on the political scene. She was now finally admitted to rooms where decisions were made and contributed to the discussions, and she was photographed helping the wounded as well, improving her public standing. 
In the spring of 1914, Missy and Nanda were sent on diplomatic missions to Berlin and St. Petersburg. Along the way, they picked up their son, Carol, whom they had commissioned into the German army in a vain attempt to curb his playboy ways. They found the Kaiser in an ebullient mood, treating Missy with far greater respect than he had ever done before. Indeed, Nando found himself as something of a third wheel, an incredible situation for the future heir of a strategically vital kingdom to find himself in. Such was the power of Missy's charm and newfound confidence. From there, the family travelled to visit the Romanovs. Their goal was to sound Nikki and Alex out about a marriage between Prince Carol and their eldest daughter, Grand Duchess Olga. Like the rest of Russian society, Missy was again unimpressed by her cousin Alex. But they did agree to set up a series of organised meet-cutes for Olga and Carol. The first of which would be during a return visit by the Romanovs to the Romanian port city of Costanza that summer. Unfortunately, Carol and Olga did not hit it off at all. Carol thought her too plain, and Olga refused to leave Russia. At the same time, the Kaiser was meeting the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand. The main topic on the discussion table was how to keep the Romanians on side, and both men agreed that Missy would be crucial in any potential future negotiation. From there, Franz Ferdinand left on his fateful trip to Bosnia and his meeting with destiny on the streets of Sarajevo. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand by Serbian nationalists was disastrous for Carol's carefully built foreign policy. He had wanted to keep Romania out of war, but his German and Austro-Hungarian allies were placing tremendous pressure on him to join the fight on their side. As I said before, Carol had always been inclined to back the Germans, as he was German, and his wife, and heir Nando. Not only were they all German, they had friends and family there as well, and saw the German Empire as the natural overlords of Central Europe. On the other side, though, was Missy, and the majority of the Romanian people. Quote, Auntie, who for years had almost forgotten her nationality, suddenly found herself a daughter of the Rhine with a vengeance. It was all the time, Deutschland über alles, and all of the rest of it. I was told that I must look upon the downfall of England as a certainty, that it was Germany's day, the beginning of the Teuton era. They must become the lords of the world for the good of humanity. She even said a thing very difficult for me to swallow. She had declared that England had to fall because her women had become immoral. Missy could deal with the Queen's enmity, she was well practised at that, but going against the King was far harder. They had grown close over the last few years, and Missy had tremendous respect for him. Quote, We were both careful not to hurt each other's feelings, but when he talked and propounded his opinions, he felt that I was no more with him, and yet he still had a desire to talk, and he had got into the habit of telling me things, and still had an urge to do so, to teach me, to advise, to instruct. We still came often together, and I listened, but I was mute. The central conundrum was this. Germany had the most powerful army in the world, and the Romanians still did not trust the Russians after they had shafted them in the peace treaty following their war of independence. They hated the Hungarians, 
but siding with the Entente would mean declaring war against their most powerful neighbours, and allying with one nation they didn't trust, and two others in the UK and France, that were too far away to make a meaningful difference. But staying neutral would mean that they would have no power in the peace talks that would follow the war, and could mean them being swallowed up by an overmighty neighbour. As I said, it wasn't an easy decision. The choice over what to do would be thrashed out in a meeting of the Crown Council on the 3rd of August 1914. At this point, the war had already begun, though Great Britain would not formally enter until the following day. The previous day, the leader of the Romanian Conservative Party dined with the royal family and saw the tensions that were driving them apart. He said that Carol, quote, was more than worried, the Queen was more bellicose than the King, and the Crown Princess was dead against the policy of her uncle and aunt and did not conceal it from them. Missy was not allowed to attend the Crown Council meeting, and so was forced to wait outside the doors with a very tense Queen Elizabeth. Quote, Poor old auntie passed through terrible anxiety, whilst her ailing husband sat through that harrowing council. Though she hated war, she saw eye to eye with him as to his belief in Germany's omnipotence. I found her pacing the corridors, up and down, over the soft red carpets like a great animal in a cage. She swept me along with her, and talked and talked incessantly. I was silent, but my heart was beating as much as hers in excruciating anxiety. Although I knew the country's pulse, the issue was still uncertain, and it was incredibly painful to be pacing this arm-in-arm with Auntie, each of us with a separate fear or hope in our hearts. In the chamber, the king argued for war, revealing the existence of the Triple Alliance Treaty, and saying that it would go against the country's honour to break the pact. Moreover, the Romanian public would not stomach allying with the hated Russians. Moreover, the Serbs would quickly be crushed, Germany would smack down France just as it had in the Franco-Prussian War, and would still be able to hold off the Russians. Honour and sense dictated that they should side with the Central Powers. Arguing against this was his Prime Minister, Pratiano, and almost all his ministers. Both Liberals and Conservatives were united in opposing the King's view and Bretiano closed the debate. He was very respectful towards Carol, but set out what his decision would be. Romania could not side with Russia or Austria-Hungary. Therefore, she should remain neutral for now, but should lay the groundwork to engineer an eventual entry into the war on the side of the Entente when the conditions were right. The king was absolutely devastated by this decision. He had dedicated much of his adult life to Romania, and now she was refusing to go to war in support of his homeland, and indeed was preparing to line up with her enemies. Missy was respectful in victory. Carol, morose in defeat. Ferdinand, silent as always. Elizabeth? Not so much. Quote, Only auntie, accustomed to argue on all subjects, could not leave well alone and tried our nerves by stirring up dogs best left sleeping. Her conversation at lunch was not always tactful. She kept loudly proclaiming that Uncle ought to shake the dust of this ungrateful country from his feet and go and rest in peace far from all conflict. Uncle visibly writhed under the things she said during meals, as all ears were more often than ever keenly open. So while the great powers of Europe slugged it out in the most terrible opening months of war that the continent had ever seen, 
Romania sat on the sidelines. Missy was alone in the royal family to be backing the Entente, and while this meant for a lonely existence inside the palace, it did mean that she was suddenly the most significant royal backing a cause favoured by both the Romanian government and people. There are rumours that in the wake of his government's decision that Carol may decide to abdicate. His health was failing, and he was stung by humiliation. Not only this, but it was also rumoured that Nando might follow him into exile. This pushed Missy into something of a panic. Quote, I was not initiated into what was actually being discussed between uncle and nephew. I never tried to make my husband speak when he desired to be dumb, but this was not only a political question, it meant our very existence. What understanding had the king and crown prince which I was not to know? If uncle abdicated, would he persuade my husband to do the same? Would it mean that, after the long, difficult, and sometimes even bitter years of hard work and education, now that my life, interest, and loyalty had really sent roots deep down into Romanian soil, I was to be torn away just at the hour when our people might really need me? How could I today stand this awful fear without trying to make my husband confess if he had made any fatal promise? But he was dumb cruelly dumb. Nothing would induce him to make me a hint of what secret understanding he had with his uncle, of what they were preparing for us over our heads without consulting our feelings or allowing us to raise any protest. I felt a deep current of anxiety stirring around us. People began to come to me, trying to find out what was going on. Finally, unable to stand the strain, I sent for Prince Sturbe, and asked him if he knew anything definite. No, he had not been told nor consulted. He too was anxious, but he could neither confirm nor abate my fears. The rumours of double abdication were so strong that Missy was approached by the finance minister, who urged her not to follow her husband into exile. He said, quote, Even if the prince, your husband, feels bound to follow his uncle into self-imposed exile, Promise that you will remain with us with your son Carol, if possible with all your children. Remain to carry on the work begun by the old king. It is not possible nor fair that you should forsake us at this crisis when we know you are here with us with all your heart. Just think for a moment how far Missy has progressed here. Only a few years ago, she was seen as a mute and passive foreign princess who had little interest in her husband or her adopted country. Now, she was seen as vital to the nation, as a potential guiding light for her son, following the nation's heart, where her husband and uncle did not. The Queen's attitude, moreover, had moved from urging abdication to a position of mass suicide. Quote, She began proclaiming loudly that we should all join hands and in a mighty circle sail up to heaven away from the miseries of this darkened sphere. This was too much for the king, who said quite firmly that he had no desire to die or to abdicate, that he was determined to see the end of the war. But sadly, he would not get his wish. On the 9th of October 1914, not long after hearing about the decisive defeat of the German army at the Battle of the Marne, King Carol died of kidney disease at Sinaia. It was all very sudden in the end, and Nando and Missy weren't actually at his side, They were in Bucharest, making an appearance on his behalf. After a day at the races, Missy had actually gone to stay with her friend Martha Bibesco. 
It was Barbara Sturbe who broke the news to her. You might have expected Missy to have experienced some nerves, some foreboding of the task that lay ahead of her. And initially, yes, she was nervous. Quote, I had become queen, queen of a people who had learned to understand me little by little. Queen at a moment when the whole of Europe was on fire and flames were licking our every frontier. I was queen. A new and fearful page was opening before me. Solemn, with unknown possibilities. Heavy, with unknown fears. But the next day, when Nando went to the Romanian parliament to be acclaimed as King Ferdinand I, she felt a very different reaction. Quote, I hardly heard the king's voice, nor his words, but I heard how they acclaimed him their king of tomorrow. A long thunder of applause rolled around the walls. Then suddenly my name ran through space. Regina Maria, Regina Maria. And there was something in the way they called out my name that it had within it a sound of hope. A great clamour mounted to the vault above, something long drawn out and tremendous that came irresistibly from many hearts. Regina Maria. And we faced each other then, my people and I. And that was my hour, mine, an hour it is not given to many to live. For at that moment, it was not only an idea, not only a tradition or a symbol they were acclaiming, but a woman, a woman they loved. And at that moment, I knew that I had won, that the stranger, the girl who had come from over the seas, was a stranger no more. I was theirs with every drop of my blood. This moment of triumph and resolution was a marked contrast to her husband's reaction on becoming king. He called the crown, quote, a legacy which I would not wish on my worst enemy. After the king's funeral, the now dowager Queen Elizabeth moved out to the Episcopal Palace, across the street from where her husband was buried. And, just to finish her story off as she won't be returning to our narrative, she survived Carol by only 17 months dying of pneumonia in March 1916. So, Missy was now Queen of Romania, and Nando was king. Everyone knew that the country sat on a precipice. She was under tremendous pressure from within and without to join the war. Both the Entente and Central Powers used every channel they could to try and get Romania to join the fight. But Romania held off for the moment. This was not for lack of nerve, it was simply that she was not prepared for war on the scale of World War I. She had only enough ammunition for three months of fighting. Her military was almost entirely equipped with German and Austrian weapons, and understandably, they weren't keen to supply them with any more at this point, and there was no guarantee of supply from the Entente. Her hospitals were too few, and those that she did have were poorly equipped with barely any trained nurses. She had almost no railways, few border defences, and, whichever side she declared for, would immediately be confronted with enemies. It wasn't just Russia and Austria-Hungary that Romania was worried about. Bulgaria was also waiting on the sidelines, and it was inevitable that she would declare for whichever side Romania did not. It seemed almost impossible for Romania not to join the war at some point. The question was when. Politics in Romania at this time was divided into three basic camps. The first was those that wished Romania to join with the Central Powers. This was a relatively tiny group, favoured of course by the new king. 
Then there were the gung-ho pro-Entente people, led by the National Action Party, an alliance of former conservatives and Transylvanian exiles, led by a man called Nicholas Filipescu. And finally, there were the pragmatists, those that wanted to enter the war on the side of the Entente, but only on the right terms and when the country was ready. This was the course of action favoured by Bratiano's government and supported by Barbo Sturbe and Missy. The epicentre of government decision-making at this point was Sturbe's house at Buftea, and Missy was ever-present. She was a very potent weapon for the cause, and was frequently deployed to charm hot-headed pro-war politicians like Filipescu into tempering their bellicosity. Missy may have been steadfast in her convictions, but like her husband, she was torn by family loyalty. She had family on both sides of the struggle. Her mother, despite her Russian heritage, backed the Germans, but was so harassed by Russophobic mobs that she was forced into exile in Switzerland for the duration of the conflict. Her favourite sister, Ducky, had moved to Russia with her new husband and so was on the Entente side. However, another sister, Alexandra, was still in Germany and so favoured her cause. Her family connections, though, did present some advantages. Being the first cousin of both the Tsar and the British king allowed her access to diplomatic back channels that no one else in Romania had. Quote, It was easy for me to keep in touch with them unofficially, and of course I was ready to serve my country in every way. Being entirely trusted by both the king and his prime minister, I was more initiated into state secrets and affairs than is usual for queens. I was considered a valuable asset and therefore expected to do my share. She corresponded particularly with King George in the UK, and her letters are fascinating, as they bear all the hallmarks their contents having been dictated by Prime Minister Bratiano, but the style and accent being all missy. She knew, for example, that her cousin knew little about Eastern European geopolitics, and ensured that it was all laid out for him in terms as layman as possible. In essence, what she laid out in these letters was Romania's price for entry into the war. She wanted all the lands that had once been part of United Romania, including Transylvania, the Banat, and Bukovina, all of which were now ruled by Austria-Hungary. She corresponded less with Tsar Nicholas, with most of her letters to Russia going through her aunt Grand Duchess Vladimir, who ran the most popular and opulent court in Petrograd. But of course her most crucial relationship was with her husband. It's hard not to feel Fernando at this juncture. A naturally meek and passive individual, he wanted nothing more than to keep the peace and take the road most trodden. Instead, he found himself caught between his Teutonic heritage and inclinations and his duty to his kingdom. Many historians have written him off as a bit of a dunce, but actually, his actions and the years of neutrality show him to be an intelligent and nimble man, always keeping his counsel and not letting anyone, even his ministers, know exactly what he would eventually decide to do. Missy was well aware of both her husband's strengths and weaknesses, and made sure that he was kept more or less unaware of just how much influence she was having on Romania's future direction. In her autobiography, she wrote at this time, quote, I knew all the king was going through, how his heart was torn and tortured with doubts and regrets. Worn out by the sole conflict he was enduring, he was sleeping badly. 
What he needed was the constant presence of someone who knew his trouble without trying to talk about it, and who was all the same there if he wanted to discuss the approaching events. Nando was exceedingly hazy about details of everyday life. He was a man of habit, but I think he never truly realised how his house was being run. I never bothered him with details, always preferring extra work rather than trying to explain things to those of slow execution. But this, of course, had maybe an important, if not always recognised, factor in our home. I grasped things easily, even those not really within my province, and my old attitude of not taking myself over-seriously allowed him to ignore how great a help I really was. This was important, or he might have crept back to his shell. Nando was easily suspicious and needed handling with extreme care. All of this to explain how warily I had to go. Together with Bretiano and Sturbe, Missy gently pushed, prodded and cajoled Nando, presenting all the arguments for declaring war on the side of the Entente. But it was a slow process. Missy's influence was not just recognised in Entente capitals, but also in Vienna and Berlin. For example, Missy had a good relationship with the Austro-Hungarian ambassador, Count Zernin. He knew well that the key to keeping Romania from entering the war on the Entente side was Missy. She later wrote of him, quote, He had probably been warned that I was the chief enemy, and I can well imagine that it had been impressed upon him how important it was that I should be won or coerced over to their side by fair means or foul. Whenever I met Zernin, he went out of his way to make himself agreeable, and I soon noticed he was doing all he could to attract my sympathy, using all of his personal charm, of which he had plenty when he dropped his arrogant attitude. Only once were we to face each other as man to man, and this was to be a real crossing of swords. He asked for an audience, and I received him alone, inviting him to a cup of tea in my own private room. At first, he was nothing but the refined and agreeable homme du monde, eager to please a lady, talking only on indifferent topics. Gradually, however, he led up to the burning subject, and suddenly there we were, up against each other with a clash of arms. A harrowing scene ensued, during which Cernan used all his batteries. He began by declaring that the fate of Romania lay in my hands. It was no good protesting or trying to persuade him that the contrary was the case. With me alone, he knew this for certain, lay the last word. Romania would act according to my decree. It was well known that the king listened to my advice. It would be according to my judgment that he would act. He, Zernan, was my friend and admirer. Therefore he had come to me at the supreme hour to open my eyes before it was too late. Now was the moment for Romania to ally herself with the Central Powers, whilst their troops were everywhere victorious. Had I considered what a fearful responsibility I was taking upon myself by pushing Romania towards the side of the Allies? If today I were put in my word so that Romania would go with them, I should ever afterwards be blessed by my people. Whilst, if I turned down his appeal, I should be handing Romania over to everlasting perdition. It was the supreme moment. Tomorrow would be too late. It all lay with me. He used every argument in his power to persuade me that Romania must throw her lot in with the Austrians and Germans. He pleaded, he threatened and flattered, he warned and coerced, 
He tortured me in every possible way, making me go through hell. He made promises, dangled victory and triumph before my eyes. He played the advisor, the accuser, the tempter. He conjured up a brilliant future before me, in which I was to play a predominant part. Declaring that, if I would do this, the thing that I ought to do, I should become the greatest figure in Romanian history. But I could only shake my head, sadly. You torture me, I said. You tear my heart and loyalty to pieces. You say that it is my word that can be decisive. I do not know if this is true, but I do know that I cannot act otherwise than as I am doing. Nothing can shake me. I share Romania's great dream, and I believe in the dictum that England always wins the last battle. It is no good trying to shape my convictions. I have no ill feeling for anyone. I consider no man my foe. But all the same, I should die of grief if Romania were to go to war with England. And thereupon we parted, not enemies, but both of us deeply distressed. Wow, what a titanic clash that had been. You cannot imagine that the Austro-Hungarian ambassador was strained such sinews to persuade Missy if he did not wholly believe in her influence. He saw, as everyone other than the king did, that she was the dominant voice in the king's ear, and that it would not be much longer until he would be finally persuaded to take up arms against his former homeland. The first domino to fall came in 1915, when Bulgaria, Romania's rival in the Second Balkan War, declared for the Central Powers. The following year, Russia launched its greatest campaign of the war, the Brusilov Offensive, a massive assault that sent the Austro-Hungarian forces reeling back. But the attack was beginning to stall, while on the Western Front the British were bogged down in the Somme and the French were being bled dry at the Battle of Verdun. This was Romania's chance. Bresciano had been waiting for just such a moment when the Entente were at their most desperate for Romanian support when they could extract the best possible terms for entry. In returning for undertaking to assault Austria-Hungary with every force it could muster, Romania would get all the territories it asked for, as well as a guarantee that it would be admitted as an equal to Britain, France and Russia at the peace negotiations, though actually there was a secret pact between the French and Russians to double-cross the Romanians on that front. The Entente also agreed to supply Romania with 300 tonnes of war material per day. And finally, France agreed to launch an offensive in Macedonia to divert the Bulgarians from attacking Romania while they were engaged. All of this was on the table. The politicians had done their work. Now it was all up to Missy to persuade her husband to sign on the dotted line. She took him for a summer retreat to one of her country residences. And there they went for drives, planted flowers and picked fruit. Missy was determined to leave Nando alone for as little as possible and to keep the atmosphere relaxed. Unlike many of her friends, she had faith that her husband would come around, that he would have the courage to take up arms against Germany, but she knew that it would take time. Quote, With all my affection, I tried to lead him to the realisation of this, to help him face the greatest grief of his life, the going against the country of his birth, against his brothers, his friends, against all he had loved and believed in, all that was his youth, his memories, his sympathies. Truly, it was a mighty sacrifice, but he made it because before all else, he is the king of this country, a good Romanian, and he too finally believed it best. 
Day by day I've seen him suffer, struggle, doubt and hope. Nothing was spared him. Neither threats nor prayers, nor calls upon his honour as a Hohenzollern, as a German officer. He was reminded of former treaties, of old uncle's inheritance, of all the politics that had been. And from the other side he was looked upon as an enemy, with suspicion. His own country doubted him. He was called a traitor, coward. He was insulted in the papers, nothing was spared him. Few believe what I told them, that when the moment came he would make his sacrifice but that he would not make it too soon, at the last moment only, so as to keep off the horrors of war for as long as possible. On the 27th of August, 1916, just over two years after the war had begun, another meeting of the Crown Council was called in Bucharest. Once again, Missy was denied entry into the room, but she knew what was about to happen. In the meeting, the king, ashen-faced, his voice broken and hands trembling, declared, quote, Although I am a member of the Hohenzollern royal family, I am the king of Romania first, and therefore I have to do what my subjects wish me to. May Romania conquer her enemies as I have conquered mine. At 5pm, Romania officially declared war on Austria-Hungary, and an hour later, her troops advanced into Transylvania. Missy had finally got what she wanted. She had brought her new country into the war on the side of her parents' nations. Romania had the chance to reclaim the lands that had been lost centuries before. But to do so, it would need to overcome the mightiest foes it had ever encountered. How would they fare? Well, you're going to have to wait till next time to find out. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.